Hey folks, before we get started, I wanted to tell you about the Consumer VC Summit. The Consumer VC Summit is a three-day virtual event that is focused on e-commerce, retail, and innovation. This is all happening February 23rd through 25th, 2021. Mark Nathan and I have really poured our souls into it. During the day is a mix of talks and panel discussions with some incredible founders and investors that focus on these sectors. In the evenings, we're going to be throwing networking events, and if you're a founder, you'll also have access to mentoring sessions, which means you'll meet three investors or industry professionals for feedback about your business. All of our talks and panels will also be available for replay with a ticket. Please check out summit.theconsumervc.com and enter ConsumerVC for a 20% discount. This is also located in the show notes. We look forward to seeing you there. Now on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. Over the holidays, we're going to be releasing highlights from past episodes from this year every morning of Hanukkah and each day during the 12 days of Christmas. If you're a founder or investor and looking to meet more folks in the ecosystem, each week I host a networking event on my Upstream channel. The link is in the show notes to join on mobile. Looking forward to seeing you there. I'm excited to share highlights from my conversation with Mike Duda, founder and one of the managing partners at Bullish. Bullish is a pre-seed fund and creative agency investing in early stage consumer companies. Some of their investments include Warby Parker, Peloton, Casper, and Birchbox. Without further ado, here's Mike. So what qualities do you look for in founders? And if you can talk a little bit about your due diligence process. Sure. So first thing, we, we, we're we B2C investors. We only invest in consumer propositions, um, period, US-based. I think we've grown to the point that we will do things now pre-seed. We, we invest in the pre-seed, seed, and we'll do a fall into Series A. We're, we're the $250,000 check writers that um, nothing can be too early. And from a diligence process, you know, I'll say a couple fancy steps, and then the punchline of the joke is probably what everyone else says. But one of the things we look at, is there an ad- advocacy deficiency in this category? You know, there's something like 220 or 230 different consumer categories out there. Literally, toilet paper is a category. Paper towels is a category. So when we see something, is there something that just like kind of stayed in old and meh about it? I think Mavron and Jason says it's, you know, NPS deficiencies, which I think is well said. Two, is there a journey deficiency? You know, why are we buying things a certain way? Like, why are razors locked up behind something in a Walgreens or CBS? Why do we have to go in front of some fat guy in a mattress store and with my wife in, in an island of these things and just lay down, which is not the way it is? Why do I have to go to the gym? Why can't fitness be brought into my home? Three, is, is there some sort of service opportunity? You know, is there a gap between the brand and the consumer that can be closed by operationalizing with more empathy? And we've seen this with what we call the DTC 3.0 crowd, like, buy, you know, give a pair, buy, buy a pair, give a care. I'll get that one right. A uh, hundred days back. Um, if you don't like after 100 days, we'll give you your money back. And then is there a branding opportunity? Is there something that just like is embedded into the product or service in some way, shape or form that you just can't, you know, that, that is just ownable out of the gate? It's a sexy Peloton bike with a 21 inch tablet on it. It's when Casper came out, it was just like this mattress that just like unfolded in your room. So you can get it within three days of ordering, not 10 to 12 weeks. And then the exponential factor, drum roll, please. Chip on the shoulder, entrepreneur. It's the founders and the team, especially a pre-seed. When you have something of a prototype or you have an idea, it's the damn people. 
and it's amazing over the years if you look at uh, at at our track record, we are blessed when you have people like Katya Beecham and Haley Barna, who's now first round, and John Foley and Jeff Rader. These people make us look a hell of a lot smarter on the investment front than 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 we really are. It's the people, and and in in times like, are they going to be able to weather this storm? Are they going to be able to like? be agile enough to change when something happens, no matter what it is on that side. So it's just, you invest in people at the end of the day. And th th those are the tops of the notes. There's, there's certainly things on the supply side and the macroeconomic side, but one of the things I'm proud that we don't study that much is TAM. I think TAM could be the most overrated metric out there, like total addressable market. What was the TAM that Peloton was going after? They're going after like this, this dorky company in Utah that sold these 1980 looking stationary bikes of which a million seven were sold each year and they sat in basements and they weren't cool. Peloton has disrupted consumer fitness, period. And, and, and we're obviously taping this during a pandemic, which is notable, but it just that just changed consumer behavior. And when things can change consumer behavior, we get excited. So we think TAM could be too limiting, although it's always wonderful to start off any presentation as we see at Y Combinator. We are addressing a three trillion, gazillion, billion market. And if we get 1%, oh, Jesus, disruptive consumer just can change consumer behavior, much of that. So that, I wanted to stress one of the things that we don't take as seriously. Although we'll say like how high is up at the same time. That's really interesting to hear because some of the other investors that came on talk about how the market slide is certainly one of the slides that, that they most pay attention to. Yeah, and, and listen, the, the mistakes we've made over the years, I should really say that I've made over the years, when we were first getting involved, I was like, I was trying to act like what a real VC would, and uh, which is hilarious because I'm not intellectually gifted, among other things. But I, you know, the, the people I credit the most to, if it weren't for first round capital, we wouldn't be where we are today. And so many people were generous. Like in the advertising business, it's cutthroat. You know, for one company to win, everyone else must fail. In the VC landscape, done well, it's like you have club deals where people surround some the founding team and the, how can we be helpful to build your company, whatever that is, and. The generosity of first round capital, and, and I, I literally get teary-eyed um, when I talk about it. They were doing this thing called office hours. And it was like, we're talking about 10, 11 years ago. And that was when it was a thing, and then everyone else ripped it off. And I think we're ripping that up now too. And I and I went to this bar, live bait in New York, and you got 10 minutes. And I, I was there and I'm at the time in my mid-30s, I'm dressed up. I'm I'm clearly like this dorky white guy. And I see all these 20-somethings who hadn't shaved for three days, like Google engineers, and they were like all excited. I'm like, oh my God, I'm, I'm like, what the hell am I doing? And then I remember Brent Burson, who was an intern at the time, came up and said, okay, you, you're number 44. You're going to be with Josh Koppelman. And, uh, and I remember I spent 10 minutes with Josh Koppelman and went through this idea of like this investing thing that would do consumer VC, but do marketing. And after 10 minutes, he's like, he gave me his card. He's like, I think you have a good idea. Let me know if I could be helpful. I walked out and it was like, if you cue dumb and dumber, Jim Carrey, it was like, I called my wife and he said, he's saying I got a chance. Like he did, he didn't call me a fucking moron or anything like that, which was, was liberating. And I, I remember then uh, there was a big article written in business week uh, by Spencer Ante about first round, which was democratizing seed stage investing. And this is, again, 10, 11 years ago. And they were holding office hours in San Francisco. And I remember taking a day off of work, flying in the back seat in the middle, which you know I wasn't as used to back given what my position was, and uh, attending a 10-minute session at first round in, in San Francisco. And uh, when I walked in, I remember leaving at 6 in the morning, landed at 9.30. I think it started at noon, so I kind of hung out. I walked in, it was like the land of broken toys. You had like 
60 something year old guys in three piece suits. You had a 19 year old with a rock'em sock'em robot that went into Chris Freilich's office. You had it, and it was just wonderful. And just to hear the stories of all these different people and what they were trying to do was great. And um, they, you know, I remember this. There were 78 companies or, or the founding ideas that showed up that day. Three of them got more than those 10 minutes, and one of them got 90 minutes. And I was the one that got 90 minutes. And Kent Goldman spent time, uh, Finn Barnes spent time, Chris Freilich, um, Christine Heron was at the time. And I just, they didn't have to do that. And they did. And so from the amount of things that I've learned um, the right way, it just is just always keep that generosity chip because they didn't have to do it and they did. And, and so when I look at first round capital, I don't think they get the, um, I, I don't think they get the credit they deserve for for inspiring a lot bigger ideas, uh, a lot more ideas, I should say, a lot more ideas than just the investments they've made. They've impacted people like me, us, and, and many, many others. And I wish I could say I didn't make the mistakes I have along the way, which were like, look for other people's validation in the beginning. Well, we'll say, oh, first round's investing it? Oh, then I should invest in it too. And then you realize the more you're contrarian, the more you're outlier, and you, you worry less about cap table validation and more for consumer vindication, you're going to be okay. And it took a while to do that, but uh, that's, that's where I think we are today. So thank you for allowing me to share some old man stories of back in my day. Oh, Mike, you should have seen me. Woo. Yeah. And there's, there's a lot of great investors out there and I don't want to turn this to an autobiography like people, Satya Patel and Beth Barrera and, and so many others. But uh, in these podcasts, you so often like, I'm trying to come off as smart. It's like, which is hilarious because that'll get undone pretty quickly. But just the end of the day, it's just like, I'm, um, Whatever I am is a culmination from the experiences and the people around me, good, bad, and otherwise. And just like, they're great. And they didn't necessarily invent venture capital. They didn't do it. But I, I think, and there's people like Ron Conway, obviously, but they, they really helped commercialize it in, in the right way. And um, cheers to you, First Round Capital. Now, enough with them. I'm not one of their LPs. We're competing against them now, but it's like they... Uh, I have to give credit where credit's due. If, I, if I'd listened better, we'd probably be more successful today, but we're, we're doing okay. That's amazing how you started Bullish and the generosity of first round. I wanted to also talk about DNVB and the future of DNVB post-COVID. Also, a couple months ago, I know there was a lot of chatter on Twitter about Casper's S1 and just wanted to hear your thoughts on it as well. Yeah, loaded stuff. And first of all, I thank you for saying DNVB 2.0 versus DTC. I think DTC, which has been around for a long time, is is so so often miscasted. Direct-to-consumer is a channel. It's not necessarily a business model. Like Harry's and Casper aren't DTC, but they're definitely DNVB. And and the way we look at these things is actually in, in DTC terms though, is like we're we're on the we're right in the middle of like a, a DTC 3.0. So take a step back. DTC 1.0 is just pure access. So it was like I, I joke it was like the as seen on TV kind of model. Uh, on there it was Columbia House CDs, like buy one, get 12 free on that side. DTC 2.0, where we've, we've, we've done pretty well on it, it's value. It's like cut out the middleman and get something uh, better value. That's where Warby came in. That's where Harry's came in and many others. So it's like that 2009 to 2013, 14, Casper as well. Right now, I see DTC 3.0 is kind of like a service. Um, what can you do for me that um, could be more custom to me? So it's care of vitamins, um, which we're an investor in. It's function of beauty, which has 54 trillion different versions of shampoo. Like th those are things that you just can't like rinse, lather, repeat, so to speak. And so it's like, what kind of utility and service do you bring based on the feedback loop that DTC brings? 
That's what we love about DTC is you can get paying customers tell you how to do product innovation, tell you what they like, what they don't like. Care of listens to them, and they, they what Care of does a great job is you have to take the quiz every like three to six months. What happens if I get pregnant? Actually, if I get pregnant, that'd be sincerely weird. But like, if I'm a female and I'm a user of the service, I get pregnant. My needs are probably different. So Care of is super empathetic to that. So how can they better serve me as a customer on that side of it? Which is, and that's why legacy CPG has been kind of like dull. They don't have all five senses. Their customers are the WalMarts, the Amazons, the Krogers of the world. So in terms of that, now you asked about Casper specifically. It's like what Casper did out of the gate. When they launched, they were hoping to be the mattress for millennials in New York City. And we said, you have a much higher ceiling than that because the pain point of how people shop for mattresses is immense. And when they launched, it literally went up and to the right like no other brand I've ever seen. And they sold in 43 states within three months. And and then you fast forward in a short amount of time, they're they're IPOing. And what we love to do with any with, with people, with with brands, with businesses, we celebrate the hell out of them until we don't want to anymore. And listen, the S1 was not a perfect Bible of how to do S1, but it's like this is a company that's still five years young figuring things out. And so we, we've written them off because it's story over, which is, is somewhat unfair. Are there things that could have been better? Sure, there's things could be better, but uh I would double down on any of the investments we made in a Casper and a Peloton, but it's it's very funny in society as we celebrate success, and then there's some sort of like prominent moment, the Peloton IPO. Um, nope, we're gonna crap all of them. Casper, the same thing, and I, I think over time they're gonna still prove to be sensational businesses. Um, I don't I don't know of any business that stays perfect for a long period of time, which goes back to why founders are so important. When you see your own blood, which every company does, how's this company going to react? Some of them just see it a little bit later stage than others. But um, I don't know if that answers your question, but it's like our take on it from a, how we're looking at DTC and, and DNVB, which is we, we, we love the DNVB thing, but DTC is in a 3.0 status right now. Thanks for that. Since the DTC channel has become so expensive, brands are looking to go offline into proper retail. But I feel like now, since DNVBs are a little out of favor with investors, uh, it might be more challenging for them to head into retail. What are you saying in, in, in regard to this? Yeah, I think it's going to be easier to go offline quicker. And, and the, the, the main point I make is, you know, I don't know any human being for all the data. Look how much time we spend on our phones and the Internet. I don't know any human that does 100% of their time on Facebook and Google. They still go to stores. We still buy things. The key thing we say to anybody is like, go to where your customer needs you. We'll take a look at Ray Wellness. <clears throat> Ray is a, uh, a women's health company based out of Minneapolis. Uh, two ex-Target executives with a combined 27 years experience. saw a huge white space, huge white space in, in a modern women's health. They launched DTC, um, is it in a, their DTC phone on October 16th of 2019. They then were able to get into about 2,000 Target stores uh, three and a half, four months later. That was always kind of part of the plan because, you know, vitamins and supplements are things that we need at different times. So if you want to go online and research, great, we're there. But it, we're also available in Target because those first three months, DTC validated who we thought our customer would be and consumer, and she shops a lot at Target. And that's why they're doing well. So there, there seems to be, we, we love black and white answers, like it's either an or, but the watershed moment in 2015 when Harry's went into Target, which was a brilliant move for them, um, that just showed it just like it wasn't an either or. It's like you're all e-commerce or not. Physical retail is still a tremendous amount uh, of, of retail right now. It's just 
there's a lot of bad retail out there, right? But I don't know if the world needs a direct consumer like Byzine company um, <laughs> on that. So it's to go where your consumer needs you. To the point earlier, like I, I think Mavron has spoken a lot about this. We've studied quite a bit. There's a lot of companies that get stuck in the 20 to 50 million, usually like closer to 35, 40 million, where if you're only DTC, just CAC, CAC unfortunately scales as companies do. You just don't see it go down. And so human beings like go with physical. So you have to do either provide more services or different products, but you got to go to where your customer needs you. And um, being rigid about channel can be not the smartest thing in the world, in our opinion. But again, there's there's always outliers. There's always different elements of it. But that's why we like the DNVB spirit is that you have feedback loop to DTC, but go into retail where you need you. Because guess what? There's, there's people in Syracuse, New York, that may not you know, shop the same way that New York and San Francisco people do. They will go to Target and it's like packaging and that final eight feet is where the marketing and discovery is made. Um, and, that, and that's great. Uh, so it's just, we, we we look at the holistic side of the equation versus either or. I think to your point, what you made is there's a lot of investors that seem scared right now of consumer. Last I checked, consumer is 68% of a $22 trillion GDP. We're getting whimsical. We're changing loyalties all the time. So as much as SaaS has excellent multiples on that stuff, what we know is consumer. What we love is consumer. There's still a lot of money made in consumer. So um, I, I guess our existence is starting to make us more contrarian by the day. But um, there's a lot of plays being made in consumer. Well, if others think that investing consumer is contrarian, then hey, that's an opportunity. How do you think about Gen Z and millennials' needs from brands? You know, it's a, it, I'm glad that we were including Gen Z because for a while, like millennials, like everything was millennials, like experiences, millennials like this. Well, it's like Gen X and other people like cool shit too and, and all that. So we, we look at things less as a psychographic or an age, but we look at like, who are we for? And so we, we do more of a persona-based thing that can extend out. So back in my old days in marketing, we were the marketing agency for Sony PlayStation. So our target audience wasn't a Gen X, whatever. Our target audience was a, a made-up 19-year-old who went to college and had a pretty good GPA and then went back home with all these other things. That 19-year-old was someone to attract like a 12 or 13-year-old boy that always wanted to be older. And then also to the 34-year-old that's got two kids. They're like, man, I miss being in my beanbag, smoking weed and, and doing PlayStation 4. And so we do these personas versus like millennials like cupcakes. So let's go after them in the cupcake industry. You know, there's many categories, if you look at health and beauty, where millennial daughters have huge influence on their moms who want to be hip and cool, and they might buy it too. So we look at less as an age element than as we look at personas and, and also what category we do it. To go more on your question, what we love about millennials and even more so what we're seeing in Gen Z is like, you have to care. You can't just sell a product. You have to stand for something more. So if you're, you make the greatest product in the world, but you're burning down the Amazon tree forest, I don't think you're going to do well with this group. So sustainability is a big thing. Values mean a lot. Um, and, and there's always trade-offs in these things, right? It, consumers of the day are irrational. I don't care if you're, you're 14 or 40 or 400. Consumers make irrational decisions of what they prioritize. You know, when you see like people that will shop at like high-end places like Saks Fifth Avenue, but they might get their groceries at Costco because they value that. Um, with a younger set, though, it just, uh, I'll go back, values mean a lot, sustainability means a lot, it's got to matter. And, um, you know, we're, we're seeing some things in the uh, late stage millennials and I think early stage Gen Z that kind of mimics a little bit of the 60s, like, 
flower child in some degree, like this, this very caring, not as outwardly rebellious back then, but it's just like, they're going to want things in their terms and their way. And not from a, not, not from an evil perspective, but Gen Z especially is a little bit more sober. They've seen a financial crisis or they've seen their parents grow up in one. They've also, the generation behind them, the glass generation, when they were one or two years old, was like skipping things on an iPhone, um, like one of my kids is doing. So it's, uh, we're, we're seeing a lot of interesting cultural elements of it, but in terms of investing consumer, we don't invest in something because it's solely X, Y, and Z uh, on that. Now, with everything I say, what I say contrarian, sometimes I'm even self-contrarian. We did invest in a company, it's still um, pre-launched, that is going after Gen Z and TikTok is going to be the main distribution channel. It's in health and beauty. That's an interesting one. Can you give like an example of a competitive advantage that modern brands might have when there might not be a technical innovation in the product um, and how they were able to be successful? Actions speak louder than words. Generous, generous brands that that actually do it and not just say it win. You know, I, I love marketing and advertising, um, but you know, part of why people hate marketing advertising people and put us right up there with like politicians and used car salesmen. It's just like, well, you lie to us to get us to buy things. And because in many ways it's easier to do marketing and advertising than to change the product. You know, I, back in the day we did marketing and advertising for general motors cars and they weren't that good. And it's like, okay, what can we sell here on that side? Early stage companies have ability to do great acts of behavior. And, and we're seeing some of that in the pandemic times, but it's, whether it's buy a pair, give a pair, or just do right by. I think the, the most seminal example that I saw early on is what Warby Parker did. Warby Parker ran advertising, and they were crushed by the volumes coming out. And uh, there was like a three or four month wait time in, in many cases. They basically shut off advertising, turned it to customer service. And customer service, which is something deemed as an expense or something cast aside by big companies, they basically leveled with the consumer and saying like, hey, we, we didn't do this right, but we're going to keep you up to speed. And just, wow, I'm having a dialogue. And I, not that I want to have like a relationship and have be friends with a lot of brands, but modern brands like act the part of like, hey, you know, it, it's fair. It's like, it, it, this isn't right. We're going to do something about it versus like making it like some sort of obstacle course to get a refund back or anything. And so I think before, whereas the brands and corporations kind of held the, held the power, it's, it's, I hate to say the consumer's control, it's so, so trite, but that's literally what's going on in us. So the great brands just do the right thing. And they're not perfect, but they're meant to be imperfect. And that's why we think customer service is a huge asset and in many ways more important than marketing and advertising, especially early on. And that, that doesn't mean those things always scale. Um, Bill Gurley had some, some great thoughts on that, but it just, you know, early stage, if you do right by people, people will keep coming back. I think those are some great points. Wondering what advice you have for founders that are located in secondary and tertiary markets and folks who don't have a VC network. Oh, we love those people. Peloton did not have a VC network. Peloton didn't get investment from VCs because they did like a PPM. They didn't do the beautiful PowerPoint deck. You know, um, Revtown out of Pittsburgh, a jeans company that's just like, proven entrepreneur, a proven executive that didn't know the VC game, but knew how to build a business. So more and more, it's easier when you have pipelines from the, the Whartons and the HBSs and the Stanfords that we, we have best in all those things. But more and more, we're trying to market ourselves that we're for disruptive consumer. And we're, we're trying to get people to raise their hands and shoot us an email or 
you know, on LinkedIn, there's always, we're always like one or two degrees away from each other. So help find us in that. So we, last year we looked at 3000 deals, which might be, uh, we think was pretty good. It's up from the year before. And you have to, to dig through a lot of stuff, but you can smell it when there's that chip on the shoulder entrepreneur that's thought of things. And, and where someone who's as equally paranoid as they are passionate, and I don't mean that in any ill will towards like men, mental wellness or mental health, but just they have it and they have an idea that's worth exploring. And um, more and more, it's just like that. They're, they're going to come out of college towns. Carnegie Mellon has got a lot of talent. So why can't Pittsburgh be great? Madison, Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin has got a great, great engineering program stuff. Austin, Texas, which hasn't really had a lot of VC stuff, but yet it has University of Texas, has a lot of young, modern tax-free state. Why, why can't great things come from there? So we, we're not resourced. This is a smaller fund to attack all those areas, but it's like we, we just, five of our last seven deals came from outside the, um, the coast. And we're super excited by that, but that doesn't mean great things can't come out of New York. We're, we're along New York and in anywhere there's great entrepreneurs, but uh, it's hard to do. Uh, and we're trying to canvas and, and do more of that stuff. So we find it. And quite frankly, relying on our entrepreneurs that might know someone. So they say, oh, you should talk to, to one of our investors. It's, it's very important that we have a strong NPS score um, in the people that we've invested in. What's one piece of advice that you have for founders of B2C businesses? You got to empathize with your, your who you, empathize. Empathy, we think, is a, a killer app, so to speak. You know, those who display empathy towards the consumers and their customers that they're serving usually do well. It's also empathizing with, like, to some degree, the VC across the table, which not enough the other way. But when I say don't listen, if if ever if each entrepreneur listened to each VC, it's just like they would get they would build the worst company would go to to hell. You know, VCs don't run companies as a whole, right? So I I hate all VC boards. I think that's a really bad thing. I think it's just like it's too much of one thing. Independent board members are great, but empathize the customer, but but don't overly listen. It when you think about it, it, it's really tough what we ask entrepreneurs to do is like keep your head down and bulldoze. You have to build and da-da-da and then fail fast, which I hate. Listen, pivot, make, make sure you're listening to that. It's like, how do you do both things one human being? Like we're literally asking people to be a, a business version of bipolar, and that is that is completely unfair. Um, so it's just like when I say empathize, it's like maybe realize it's coming from, but um, you know, there's there's a great quote from one of our LPs, the founder of Under Armour, Kevin Plank. And he said, Under Armour succeeded because he was naive enough to not know what they couldn't accomplish. You know, he didn't come from the fashion industry, he didn't come from the parallel industry. He's like, why can't it do? But he but he was like focused on the athlete and, and that side. And I think it's a tough thing to do because in many ways it's like, well, if we want to raise money, we have to play the DC game versus you know, um, one of the things I've said way too often probably is I think there's two great business movies of all time. One is Godfather, for obvious reasons. The other one is Office Space. And it's funny how I think I'm operating more off Office Space where there's a little bit of the, fuck it, I'm just gonna do what I think is right kind of element to it that is that just works. And if you spend too much time, like what is what do I want this other person to, what do they want to hear based on the stuff they've done or whatever, you're gonna lose your own plot. So. I'd say empathize, but don't listen, which I know sounds counterintuitive or a collision, but but very purposely so. Empathize, but don't listen. I really like that. And it's hard because it's like there's no one right way of doing it. Like an ideal investor for one for one entrepreneur might be someone who's hands-on and is almost uh, a chairman of the company. We look at our roles to provide perspective. It's just like the pressure test. Like we, we, try, to, we try to stay naive. And fire questions like, 
well, what about this? What about this? What about the consumer and those things? And just offer up a perspective versus mandating X, Y, or Z. And again, we're not, we don't own 30, 20 to 30% stakes in companies, but you know, it's just, there's, there's not a one way to, and, and by no means my damning how other VCs do it. I mean, who am I to do it? Uh, we're much smaller in that, but it's, it's just our point of view and perspective on things, but there's no one silver bullet way, which would be easy, but there just really isn't. And so different entrepreneurs just different, need a different level of support or quite frankly, a lack thereof. And there you have it. If you enjoyed this, I highly recommend checking out Mike's full episode.